Well, we have a uh, couple of uh, couple of unique things that we're doing today. Uh, one of those. Uh, oh, before I, I I do need to make this announcement today. So last week we were letting you know about the seder, the Passover seder that we'll be doing on April third, which is a Monday. And a, a seder. What's a seder? Well, that's the the, the Passover dinner that Jesus did with his disciples. Uh, it's, a, it's an annual deal. You see it if you were in uh, Israel you, or a Jewish community, you would see them doing the Seder the night before Passover. And so Pastor Lynn Lapka, whom we went to Israel with, and his wife Holly will come, and they walk us through that. And just I went a couple years ago in Whitefish, and just so neat. You see the Old Testament and the prophecies being fulfilled in Christ at that Last Supper and where God is going with that. And, it, and it's just, it's, it's eye-opening. It's really enjoyable. So there's a meal that goes with that. Um, last week, I mean, I was really surprised. You don't always get a response. We had just from here, 33 people sign up. Um, if you are interested in that and you want to go, uh, we have the sign-up. Cassandra will have it. But this isn't a tentative sign-up. Don't put your name on here unless you really mean to come because we're limiting the number of people that can come. We're preparing that much food. And if you sign up and don't come, you have taken somebody else's spot. Don't do that. If you lose a limb or you die, you're excused. But other than that, if your name's on the list, it better be there. If you sign up and you find out you can't come, please let us know so we can take your name off. This is the last week before I open this up to the other churches in our community and our community in general. we were going to go 50, we might go 60 people. Um, just I don't think we're going to have any problem getting another 15 people on here, even if nobody else signed up today. But this is your last chance to get it before it goes out to everybody else. We wanted to make sure you had an opportunity, so that's there. Uh, Ron, would you give that to my wife? Thank you. Okay, uh, the other thing um, uh, doing today, we... Um, are receiving some new members today. Um, and uh, that, that's always an exciting time. And, and I, I'm not going to put them on the spot yet. They, they know they got to come up. There's actually three. One wasn't able to be here today. He's not feeling good. That was Vincent Stringer. And, uh, but Luke and Amy uh, Bjorkman, they are joining our church as official members. We're going to bring them up at at a point and pray for them. But I know Amy, she's like, are you going to make us stand up there? I said, not for very long, for very long. But I I do have, I do have, I get asked often, especially when you begin to talk about membership. They go, what, 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 what's, what's the deal with that? And I I don't build a doctrine about it, but there's reasons as a pastor that I have some feelings about it. Right? You might have some feelings about it. Might be good feelings. I know people that have bad feelings. They've had bad experiences. I know people that have had good experiences. And so I wanted to present this to you today because this is part of what I present to people uh, when we begin to talk about that public commitment to a group of people called a local church. Okay? That's, that's to me, uh, what membership is. And I, if you, if you, get around me very much, I I go, well, to me, it's kind of like there's dating and there's marriage, right? And when you date, man, you like the person and you hang out with them and you do stuff and, oh, you're all googly-eyed and it's great, you know? But if something goes wrong, right, it's easy to, whoop, well, that's enough of that. But when you get married, right, for better or for Worse, And the way that we get married is we make a public commitment before witnesses and before God. And now there's a commitment. And I'll tell you that until commitment's made, there's nothing to challenge. Um, a little, little story before I go into this. I actually had it at the end, but I'll give it to you at the beginning. When, when we first came, the first um, marriage that I performed, first ceremony I performed officially as the pastor here was with a couple didn't didn't come to our church, but they came to me. I guess we were the first number in the book. And uh, they said, hey, would you, would you marry us? 
I said, well, I will, but my requirement is you meet with me at least three times, and we do some premarital counseling. And so maybe they'd called the other numbers, and everybody else said, no, they agreed. Okay, so they came in, and at some point, basically they looked at me, and they said, and they're actually younger than me, they said, we, we are here because you required us to be here. We believe you have nothing to offer us that will help us in marriage. We've been living together for eight years. It's been great. We'll be fine. What do you say, right? Within six weeks, their marriage was annulled. Until you make a commitment, there's nothing to challenge. Now, what do you say? Because I believe the principles that, that I'll share with you today are for everybody, not just for those who have decided to join here. Everybody should find this in their life and go, wow, I need this. Not, not, not that I'm a, a member of a church, but there's a level of commitment that you go, am I really that committed or am I just dating? Right? Because have you ever watched people that date for years and years and years and years and years, and eventually everybody says, get on with it, right? Get in or get out, right? Have you ever met anybody like that? Maybe you've been one of those people. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. All right, so um, today we're going to take a member um, um, of a few moments, and we're going to recognize these people who have decided to join us, and we're going to pray for them. But I want to tell you what we're going to pray for, because I thought about that, just that statement that the first act that we perform when somebody joins the church is we pray for them, and that's that's a little scary. That could be a little scary if that's the first thing you do. It's like, wow, they've decided to join the church. Let's, let's pray that they make it here, right? <laughs> that's how I think. I'm just your pastor. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it's really not that at all. It has roots in the belief, for me anyway, that they have answered a kingdom-defining question, and we're praying for them for the resources that God provides in abundance to all who are answering the question. What's the question? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It's a question that I ask everybody with whom I would talk about making their commitment to a church body public, also known as becoming a church member or becoming a member of a church. And here's the question. Where does God desire you to be in his body, and to who are you members of? Okay, now this all has roots in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 and 20. I, I love this verse, uh, and it so flies in the face of the culture that we live in that says, I'm the master of my own universe, right? We are not. He, like God has a plan, are you in it? Are you in it? Here's what it says. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 and 20. But now God has placed the members. Who are the members? Point at yourself, me. I'm a member of Christ's body. I'm a part. I'm a, I'm a finger. I'm a nail. I'm a follicle. I'm a hair. I don't, I don't care what you are. You're a member of Christ's body. Each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Did you get that? God placed the members as he desired. Do you know what God's desire for you is? If you, if you don't, that, I, would, I would say it's not a bad thing, but are you asking? Are you asking? God, where do you desire that I would be placed? Because it says here that you place each member as you desire. Look at verse 20. Now, there are many members, but one body. So each one of us have a desired place in the body of Christ. Right? Am I misinterpreting that? Okay. Jim agrees, so you all, I know everybody just follows with Jim. You know, you just speak, nobody else to speak up, so I got to go with Jim. All right. Romans 12. Verses 4 and 5, for just as we have many members, who are the members? Me. In one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Isn't that an amazing thing that when God created you, he created you with intentionality. He created you with purpose. He created you with function. 
And he has a desired place that you would function in his body. Do you know his desire? So we who are many, verse 5 says, are one in the body and individually members of one another. Not only do you bring an individual talent, but you become a part of others' lives in this community. Do you know where that place is? And I think it's my desire that everybody would know where that place is, even if it's not here. I want you in the place that God has for you. I want you in the place where you are going to grow, put down roots, and function the way God desired you. Because if you are there, then the body of Christ is a healthier place. But there's something about that, and that's to go, man, to put down and then to say it out loud or to stand in front of people is scary because what if I'm wrong? Well, you know what? I would rather be publicly wrong than to live my life never committing to anything and being wrong, because that is wrong. What if you're right? And I have, every place I have ever been, I have had that sense of settledness. And when I got there, I go, this is the place God wants me. And so I'm going to commit to that. I'm going to commit to it publicly. You want to know why? Because when I commit, I'm going to be challenged. And when I'm challenged, that's when I grow. Right? Uh, You never grow if you're not challenged. And I will guarantee you, the funny thing is, I tell people, I go, when God puts you someplace, he knows about all the other people that are there. He knows about all the other things you're going to face. He knows about all the other issues. And so when that comes, don't come to me and say, Pastor, I'm out of here. No, 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 no. You made your commitment to him, and he knew that that was there. Will you grow? Will you grow? Because, as Keith Green said in one of his songs, he says, you want to find a perfect place. Well, if you find it, let me know, and I'll go there too. Right? In other words, it don't exist. It don't exist. All right. The question is, where is God's desired place for you? The place where you function as a part of his body and become committed to a community where I am joined with other members in the work of the kingdom. These people are answering that question. We believe that this is the place where God has put us to do his desire and experience our proper function in the body of Christ. Now, I want to say, I understand that there are seasons. There are seasons. Sometimes, God grows somebody in a place like being in a nursery, right? And I'm talking about a, like a, a garden-type nursery, and then, then you're, you're transplanted, and you're taken other places, and we see that in Scripture. But um, if, if you are never planted anywhere, your roots get stunted, and you never produce fruit. You may have some green leaves, but you will never produce fruit. Anytime you answer a question like that and make a public commitment, to the answer, you will be challenged on multiple levels. And I talked about the couple. Um, so today, we're going we're gonna to pray. We'll pray for Vincent, too, but we're going to pray for Luke and Amy. We'll have them come up. Um, not just yet, but um, we're going to pray and agree with these that God would strengthen their commitment and resolve to be active in their place of his desire and that they would be amply supplied for every good work. And now somebody's going to ask me, well, do you believe that I have to go through the ceremony to prove that I'm committed? Nope, you don't. But my question back is, why wouldn't you? Right? Pastor, are you? No, I'm just saying. Everybody needs to find the place where you go, I'm, I'm willing to do that there. Like, I'm willing to grow there because I will guarantee you, when you make the commitment, you're going to get opportunity to grow. You're going to run into people you didn't know were there. You're going to face situations you didn't know were there. All of a sudden, you're going to see all the warts Pastor Brent has. You're going to go, what did I do? Oh, I've availed myself to an opportunity to grow. Let me read. I was reading this this morning. I usually don't do this devotional on Sunday morning, but I, I had 
I got up a little extra early. I went up to feed the rabbit. This is Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. Uh, I've, I've never read this. I'd always heard about it, and I found it at the Salvation Army. I was with Cassandra, picked it up, been reading through it, and I've really been enjoying it. Oswald Chambers passed away in 1917. Um, he was a Scottish uh, holiness preacher. He was Baptist. Um, and on his way to Japan, he stopped in America with a Japanese holiness evangelist, and he ended up staying for a year, and I believe it was 1908, but he was introduced to the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was so, like the Azusa Street was 1906 to 1915, uh, and so he came right in the middle of that, and actually what he was finding was their church was being kind of divided by this new teaching, which is so funny to me because the Holy Spirit never divided anything. Like, he brought us all together. I don't know why that happens. But anyway, um, but he came and he wrote, and so the perspective is from 1917, or uh, from 19, well, he died in 1917. His wife published these in 1935. So this was um, the perspective of this preacher during this time, watching people during this great time of revival. And so it's very interesting to me to read what he says because he sees things, even in the time of revival, that are very unhealthy in people's lives and how they are treating the revival, right? So that's kind of the perspective. So listen to what he says. Listen to what he says here. The title of this is actually March 4th. I'm ahead. Why am I ahead? Because the year will catch up with me. Uh, it says, is this true of me? And the verse that he starts out with is Acts 20, 24. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Here's what he says. It is easier to serve or work for God without a vision and without a call. And really, when, I, when, I, when you hear the word call, this is what struck me, is there, you're answering a call. When you publicly commit to something, I think that's when you really answer a call. When they ordain or license pastors, they stand them up in front of people in public. It's a public commitment. It's, it's not only me making that declaration, but it's you watching to hold me accountable. Right? When we do weddings, we do the same thing. Um, anything that was meant to last any amount of time at all back in Jesus' day was done in public. It was done in public. So the call, answering the call is, is hey, yeah, I'm, I'm committed. I'm committed. Let's just put it that way. It's easier to serve and work God without a vision or without a call because then you are not bothered by what he requires. Common sense, listen to this. Common sense covered with a layer of Christian emotion becomes your guide. You may be more prosperous and successful from the world's perspective, and you will have more leisure time if you never acknowledge the call of God. But once you receive a commission from Jesus Christ, the memory of what God asks you will always be there to prod you to do his will. You will no longer be able to work for him on the basis of common sense. What do I count my life as dear to me? Um, what do I count in my life as dear to me? If I have not been seized by Jesus Christ and have not surrendered myself to him, I will consider the time I decide to give to God and my own ideas of service as dear. I will also consider my own life as dear to myself. But Paul said he considered his life dear so that he might fulfill the ministry he had received. And he refused to use the energy on anything else. This verse shows an almost noble annoyance by Paul at the asking to consider himself. He was absolutely indifferent to any consideration other than that of fulfilling the ministry he had received. Our ordinary and reasonable service to God may actually compete against our total surrender to him. Our reasonable work is based on the following argument we say to ourselves, remember how useful you are here and think how much value you would be in that particular type of work. The attitude chooses our own judgment instead of Jesus Christ to be our guide as to where we should go and what we could be used for most. Never consider whether or not you are of use, but always consider that you are not your own. You are his. You are his. He has a desire for you. Uh, when I talked with those 
that we're receiving as members, I again and again said, this is an extension of your relationship with Christ. It's what it is. This is a living out. This is a commitment to God's plan for your life. Um, You're not committing to a cause. You're not committing to a brand. You're not committing to a building. You're not committing first to a community. You're committing first to God and his plan for your life because you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. What is his desire for you? And so that's not a guilt trip. It's just people ask me, go, why, do you believe, why do you believe about church membership? Because I believe it is a higher level of commitment than just dating the church. That's, that's what I believe. I, I, well, am I wrong if I don't? I pray that someday you do. I pray that someday you find that place that grips your heart so much that you go, I know this is where God wants me. Right? Um, That is what has kept us here for 18 years. God, we believe this is, it hasn't been because it's always been good. It hasn't been because it's always been bad. It's, It's God's call first. Like, why are you here? Because God hadn't told me to do anything else. Right? Now, that doesn't mean I haven't asked him to. That doesn't mean maybe you haven't asked him to. It's his call, his plan first. So, let's have Luke and Amy, and and, Stella's back there. If you don't know Stella, she's over there. She's the fun one. That's why we really ask these guys to come. Let's have them come up, Luke and Amy. They can bring Stella if they want to, or they can leave her over there. All right, Stella, come up. Cassandra's got to give you up for a few minutes. If I could get David and Tion and Val and Cecil, you guys would come up. I'm just going to pray a passage of Scripture. I think this is a very appropriate. Uh, so many times we just allocate this to the giving of resources, but I think it applies just as much to the giving of our lives to God's desire and His call. Oh, you can face them. Don't look at me. (laughs) Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 11 says this. Make this our prayer today. Now I say that those who sow sparingly will also reap sparingly, and that those who sow bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as they have purposed in their heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, Luke and Amy and Stella, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Father, we thank you for Luke and Amy and for Vincent. God, we just thank you for the response to your desire your desire in a public way, God, not not more than anybody else, but just making that choice to stand up. God, it's a scary place to stand because now people are watching, because now I've committed, because now I feel like there's no more back door. But God, you're moving us forward. You are our shepherd. You are leading us forward. We thank you for these people individually. We thank you for the families that they represent and they bring. God, we ask that you would cover them and protect them. We pray in the testing of the commitment that you would strengthen them and that you would go before them. God, that you would fight for them. Would you strike your enemy in the mouth? No weapon fashioned against them can prosper. We thank you for all that you've placed in them. God, that will come out and bear fruit 
as they take root. God, as they stand in this place and they say, yes, God, show us here who you created us to be. We thank you for them. God, we bless them. We ask that you would watch over them. God, cause your face to shine upon them. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, that was, that was it. That was painless. No hazing, nothing. It was just easy. <laughs> Amen. Now, there are other reasons that we have to have membership as part of a nonprofit, and that is as well. But it, I mean, my desire, really, my desire as a pastor, and I've, I've told people, that I knew this wasn't their best fit, but I'm like, find the place where it is because that's where you're going to grow. That's a, you will be challenged there. It's like you would be challenged here. But grow there. Find God's desire. Do you, you ever think about that, that God... So how many of you have ever wondered or thought or maybe heard somebody make the statement, does God need you? You ever heard that? Or just me? Yeah, all right. Uh, I, 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 I've, I've talked to a lot of people that have made that. Does God need me? Right? Does God need us? And really, God doesn't know what need is, does he? God doesn't need anything. And so that means that when he created you, he created with intent, not need, intent. He had creative purpose when he made you. And he had creative desire. And I, I like to build things and make things. And, you know, I, when I worked as a mechanic and I got to put something together, my greatest desire was when it came to life and operated the way it was supposed to. Mm. Just put a smile on my face. I think same way with God. When we enter the desire, when we willingly enter the desire that he has for us and we function in that creative ability that he gave us in the creative purpose as a powerful thing. So, I pray that you find that. I pray that you find that. Amen. You know, I was out in the fellowship hall a minute ago. Don't go back there. The smell, I almost didn't come back. All right, I'm not going to go horribly far into this today. Um, I want to bring a couple of ideas as we are entering verse 4. Isn't it great? We've made it halfway through Psalms 23. Before I get too carried away patting myself on the back, there's only six verses, and I've been in it for three months. So, <clears throat> halfway through, halfway through verse, verse 3, we, we kind of finished up last week, and I want to, I want to add verse 4 to this this week, and then I want to talk about a couple of things that we're, we just want to draw to this. I've touched on them, but um, just making them more evident, touching on them a little more heavy. So it's Psalms 23, verses 1 through 4. The Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, I've, I've been, I actually, when, when I started teaching in this, this is the verse I so wanted to get to. I kind of wanted to start there, but I'm glad I didn't. And I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to introduce a couple of things. Uh, one uh, term that you're probably going to hear me use a lot with this particular verse, verse 4, is the culture of shepherding. Now, when I started this, I said this is a psalm of identity, okay? But it's also a psalm that can define culture, okay? We, we do not live in a culture that appreciates Shepherding. Now, I'm not saying that people don't like sheep. I'm just saying, as a people, um, 
we're pretty individualistic. We don't like to be shepherded. We don't like to have anybody tell us what to do unless they're telling us to do something we like, right? Uh, and, and, but this psalm depicts that we have been invited to a culture of shepherding, which is really, there's a sense of weakness in that, which nobody likes. Everybody's trying to get rid of their weakness and be strong. And God says, well, when you're weak, then you can really be strong. And this verse 4 does such a good job of drawing this out. We're going to see it as we get into it. And so there's this culture of shepherding, and the question is, are you interested in growing in a culture of shepherding? I think as God's people, the church, um, we're desperate to learn this. You don't see it strong. Um, I mean, and again, I think it's dangerous to judge the condition of the church solely by what you would see in the media, um, because that's probably not a good representation either. But we certainly do see a lot of strong individual personalities who don't appear to be being led. They're leading the charge, lashing out, and they would call all who follow them to do the same. I think that's too bad, really. We're called to be shepherded. The shepherd, again and again in Scripture, we're told there are things we should not touch because they belong to God. What's one of them? Vengeance. Man, I've never met such a vengeful bunch of people in my I'm not talking about you guys. I'm just saying. Man, you, you turn on and they're just... We're going to get ours. I'm like, wow, that certainly sounds good. It might even have the appearance of righteousness. We're, we're fighting this battle, but where are you being shepherded? Like, where does God have any place in this? Because it just looks like that's what you're doing. So there's a culture of, of shepherding that we're invited to in this. And, and oh, I'm just, I just, I can't wait to get to it. The other, the other thing that, that this draws in, now I was talking to Pastor Lynn Lapka this last week. I try to get together with him. We do Zoom calls now that he's in Minnesota for the winter. <clears throat> but on Thursdays, and you know, he's um, reading a book on the parables and written really from a, from a Jewish perspective on the parables. And and he was frustrated. Pastor Brent, I'm frustrated. He goes, our, our Bibles have, you know, are broken up, chapter and verse, and, and they put all these subtitles in there. No, I'm not. I mean, some of it. But I, I, he was explaining this to me. And he goes, and what happens is it's human nature, our human nature, is that we create doors and windows and blockades, and, and, and we get an idea in our head and we miss everything else. And we were talking about the parable of the prodigal son. And he goes, so when you, when you get to these, you read this, and it goes, the parable of the prodigal son. So now, who is the parable about? Right? It automatically puts, in my mind, says this is about the son. So as I go through, I pay attention to the son. But actually, in that parable, there's, Really, three prominent characters mentioned. Who are they? The father, the brother, the older son, and, and the younger son. And if there are three people mentioned, then God's teaching three lessons. Right? It is not just about the prodigal son. It is also about the father. And in, it was very interesting because um, the parable starts out, and a man had two sons. And Lynn was telling me, he goes, if you go into the Jewish culture and you say there were two sons, instantly they go back and they think about who? Jacob and Esau. They think about um, all the places where there were two sons. And typically one son was favored and one son was not favored, right? And, and he, goes, he goes, Jacob and Esau, right? Uh, 
Jacob, he's a scoundrel. Esau, he's kind of a rule follower. He's going he's gonna to try to please his father. He's going to do these things. And here in this story, looky here, if we don't have the same thing happen. And so it's also about the older brother, but it's also about the father, right? And, and I know this is going to shake some people's buckets, but, you know, God would minister to fathers through this, but this father has made some mistake in ignoring his son, right? And I know we always take it, we go, oh, that's God the father. Well, yeah, his, his love, we do see that, but we also see, right, a father, a real earthly father who made some mistakes. What's the point? Point is that in our study of Scripture, in our learning of Scripture, in our daily lives, we sometimes allow the subtitles and the chapter breaks and the things that happen to define what things are about, and we miss the real beauty of what's being said because we make it a little too flat. And I really, I want to draw that out. Why? Because as you study Scripture, I want you to look for these things. I want you to stop and go, you know, I've always read it this way. There's a subtitle there. There's there's a chapter break there. But I'm going to look a little deeper. God, are you saying a little more in here than what I've ever caught? Maybe I've just allowed that to define what I get out of this. And I found it very interesting because we, we were still talking and I said, Lynn, isn't it funny how we even do that in our own lives? You know, I've got some things that happen on a consistent basis that I don't enjoy. Um, one of them happens to be a monthly meeting that I attend. And I was in preparation actually to go to that meeting as I was talking to Lynn and the Spirit of God just checked me and goes, Brent, what's your subtitle for that meeting? Hard, miserable, wish I wasn't there. Those are my subtitles. Those are my subtitles for that. That's what I expect when I get there. And God goes, why don't you take the subtitle off of that? And why don't you receive that meeting from me? Because as I've learned in Psalms 23, that each day is a day to be received from the Lord with its circumstances. But when I put subtitles on the circumstances, a lot of times I get what I expect rather than saying, God, I receive this from you. Would you help me to see the green pasture and the still water? Would you see me how, help me see how you're restoring my soul in the midst of it? You get that? You get that? Sometimes the subtitles are what's killing us. Because in a culture of shepherding, the sheep receive each day from the shepherd. That's a, that's a part of the culture of shepherding. And the sheep don't run out and try to change everything. They just follow the shepherd. Okay. So, um, our, our natural tendency, and I, I, I kind of pick up here and me, I'll go through here and drop it off, and we're going to go back and eat because I can't wait to get to whatever it is I'm smelling back there. I just want to make an observation, and I've been making it, but I want to uh, maybe make it a little more clear about human nature. Why are you doing this? You're not even sharing a lot of scripture today because I believe that there's times that we get tools. God gives us tools and he goes, pay attention because I'll give you more. I'll give you more. I want you to have more. When you read your scripture, I want you to have more. I want, want, man, I've never seen Psalms 23 like this. Never. God has just opened it up. I look at it, I go, "How, how in the world? Have I spent that much time in the first three verses? And then I look back and I look at what God's been doing in my life and I go, God, so much more there than what I allowed to be there because I just, I threw some subtitles in there and kind of read it the way I'd heard it and and that's what it was and never saw the life and the culture that you were inviting me to. And I never saw this passage of scripture reach into so many other places that I value and I cherish in scripture. So it's just an observation of human nature. It's interesting that our nature, and we, we have a tendency to pick up stuff we like and to disregard things we see as less desirable to us. And that makes its way into how we study Scripture, right? 
I mean, it's natural to pick up things we like, to disregard things we don't like. Um, I've, I've heard this statement in regard to reading books. Uh, had a guy recommend a book to me, and he goes, no, Brent, you got to treat this like catfish. I said, oh, yeah, that's that. He goes, eat the meat, throw away the bones, right? Um, it, it's, it's the same way sometimes we do that. We go, well, that's just bones. I don't, I don't get that. But what I really see here that I like, I'm going to pick up on that, and that's kind of what I'm going to draw out. And that happens a lot as we read Scripture. For instance, in Psalms 23, it seems to be that this psalm is recited most in times of loss. Now, where does that come from? It comes from verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Drawing comfort in a dark shadow of death. Okay? And that, that is, I think, I have heard this more at funerals than anywhere else. I've only heard one other guy teach on this. He did a really good job. I should go back and listen to him teach. Um, other points from the psalm that are commonly picked up on by those looking for a particular anchor point, right? Shall not want. Shall not want. That I like that. Shall not want. Green pastures, I like green pastures. Still waters, I like still waters. Comfort me, says you're going to comfort me. I like that. Goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. I like that. I like that, right? So if, if there's particular things going on in my life, I, I might come back. You know, there's times that I've, I've prayed verse 4 specifically. Oh, God, you know, it feels like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, I, I can't say that I won't fear any evil. Like, I'm just wanting to know that you're here. Help me know that you're here, right? And so we, we pick up on these things. Not, not All these observations and focused takeaways aren't always wrong, but they are not a healthy way to consistently nourish a growing faith in Christ. Because, Scripture, I, I put this down here. I, I, I'll read it verbatim. I just had this picture in my head. I had two pictures in my head, actually. The scriptures are prepared like a gourmet dish, lavished with rich ingredients, effective spices. And when taken together, they set the spiritual palate on fire with the decadent flavor of God's kingdom. They're put together. They're put together. It's not just a a bunch of individual little pieces anymore. Matter of fact, it is very dangerous to take individual texts and use them consistently in individual situations. That's called proof texting, and that's taking the text and making it say what I want to prove. Dangerous. Don't do it. Whenever you find something and it really grabs you, go back and find what surrounds it, because that are, those are the ingredients that it's been made with. There are times I will go clear back to the beginning of a chapter. I may even go clear back to the beginning of a book. And look and go, God, you were saying this from the beginning. Help me to see what you're really giving me and not just pick out the little pieces. Because far too often, we approach uh, Scripture like a finicky child, picking through the color and the sauce of a dish, hoping to find a piece. (laughs) Pastor's cousin, oh my goodness. Hoping to find a piece. You know, we all have our dish. Lord, don't forget that we're butt dust. Yes, all right. Uh, A finicky child picking through the color and the sauce of a dish, hoping to find a piece we would prefer rather than partaking to satisfy our immature spiritual palate. And I I just thought of, I just, maybe me when I was a kid, I did not want peas. There were certain things, man, I would sit and I would pick through that pasta salad or whatever it was to find the piece of ham, to find the piece of... Uh, noodle pasta that I wanted, and then I would eat that, and I'd leave all the rest of it on the table. You can do that, but that's not the way you thrive and live. We need to take the whole thing. And so, at verse 4, I would say, for most people, that we have created a division, right? Because up to verse 3, we're, we're viewing something that looks good to us. We, we, we 
we, we move from, from verse 3 to verse 4, we move from lush green pastures and quiet waters where the path of righteousness meanders and things are good. And it seems like we move from there, like stop there, and now we're in a dark valley of looming death. It's like, oh, two different thoughts. Two different thoughts, but you know it really isn't? It really isn't? And we get robbed of the power and the flavor of the psalm when we put a subtitle there, good life, bad life? Let's, let's look at what David had said. Somehow, we comfort ourselves with a promise as we go into verse 4. We kind of create this wall and we comfort ourselves with the promise of verse 4 as a standalone. Well, I guess it will be okay here for a while because God is still with me. I will survive until he gets me back in the good pastures. However, the reality is that verse 4 is not a new thought or a different setting. It is a continuation in the thoughts of the first three verses. And last week I said that this is really the first statement of faith that the sheep make. We talk about the characteristics of the shepherd and what he does up through verse 3, but in verse 4, the sheep make a statement. And I might just um, kind of draw it in with this. As I looked at this, I've had a couple of thoughts. And one of them came to me yesterday as I was getting ready. Have you ever considered, even though we don't encounter this until halfway through the psalm, that when David, like David wrote this, when David wrote this, that he had the valley of the shadow of death in view before he started writing the psalm. And I took that and I put it at the beginning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff there comfort me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside still water. You restore my soul. You lead me in paths of righteousness for, my, for your namesake. And I begin to think about that. Why? Because remember we were talking about faith, that the first three verses are such a good description of faith. Faith is a confidence in God's character. Faith is for obedience, right? Faith is not for, for, for production. And as I read this and in my life, I, I have to be anchored on something and I have to understand something, then that is that Many times when God is leading me into his will and he is refreshing me with his spirit and he is leading me in the path of how he sees it and he is restoring the essence of life, many times he is doing that in the valley of the shadow of death. Right? Because when I think about those things, I think about good places. I think about this is where good thing happens. But can I tell you that the greatest places of restoring, the greatest places of finding God's will, the greatest places of being refreshed by the Spirit of Christ have been in the darkest places of my life, in the valley of the shadow of death. And is it unthinkable to think that God may lead me in the path of righteousness into a place that looks like the valley of the shadow of death to me. Because what's the first question we ask when we have really engaged in pursuing God and all of a sudden things go wrong? What's the first question we ask? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Maybe you did nothing wrong. Maybe you made a commitment. Maybe the commitment's being challenged but I will fear no evil for you are with me. And in this place, you are my shepherd. And in this place, you will lead me and cause me to lie down in green pastures. And in this place, you will lead me beside still waters. And in this place, you will restore my soul. In this place. You know, when it talks about death having no more sting, well, that'll take the sting out of death. And it will certainly take the sting out of the valley of the shadow of death, which we're all going to face. I mean, I'm not just talking physical death. 
We experience the death of dreams. We experience death in so many ways. The first question is, what did I do wrong? Rather than asking the question, am I on the path with the shepherd? Yes, I am. Then I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I think it's so important. I've never, I've, I've, as all my life, as I've read that psalm, I've made a disconnect right there. Like this half of the psalm is for when things are going good, and this half of the psalm is for when things are going bad. But really, the first half of the psalm tells us what the shepherd's going to do in the valley of the shadow of death. And next week, I think, when we look at the end of that verse, your rod and your staff, you're, coming. you're not going to believe what we can get out of that. But it shows us the culture of the shepherd. It shows us the culture of the shepherd. It shows us how he works in every situation, but specifically in the valley of the shadow of death, and how we should anticipate him to lead us if we are willing to be a part of a culture of being shepherded, because it is so much different than the culture that we live in. I'm, man, I'm, let's say, I'm stoked to get to that. That's why I'm not going to do it today, because I don't, I'm not going to, I don't want to shorten anything up or abbreviate anything. You just, you got to see it. I, I'm, I'm so glad God, the, the word of God is, um, is compared to a mirror in James. Um, in, the, in the temple worship, there was a big laver, a big copper laver full of water, thousands of gallons of water where the priests would wash themselves before they went in, and it was reflective. They would see themselves. And we go, in the word of God, James says, it is, it is like a mirror. You see yourself. He goes, so don't walk away and forget what you look like. I love this because I can see myself in it. And I can see what God is doing. And I can see where I resist him. And I go, oh God, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. No kidding, this has done more to change how I look at God. Anything else in the last 20 years that I've experienced. He goes, I, and it's not that I haven't been growing, but I don't know. And, and maybe it's just me. Maybe you're just growing with me. But I hope that you're drawing from this. Um, and next week, you will, you will see yourself, I promise you, in uh, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's uh it's an exciting, exciting. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for our meal. Uh, we'll be gathering here in a little over an hour for the business meeting. Um, but even if you're not coming to that, if you didn't bring anything, it doesn't matter. Come back. Join us. Let's all go back, have a meal together, fellowship together. And um, again, if you'd like prayer today, there will still be people here to pray with you. I, I will not be here because they've told me I need to get at the front of the line and you all want to eat and I've smelled what's back there. Father, we thank you.